Well, hey, everybody. Welcome. It's good to see your bright and glistening faces this morning. And I hope that's because you, uh, you're just really uh, experiencing the joy and the delight of the Lord this morning. And it's not just because the sun is beating down on your heads. <laughs> but uh, it's really good to be here. Um, you know, this, we're going to be talking today about proper worship, what it means to really worship God, what it means to worship God in spirit and in truth. And, and so for those who may be in the first camp who are really experiencing joy and delight in the Lord, I pray that this will be a time where, where your joy is fueled, where you get excited and it just it, it engages your heart and, and you just experience more and more joy. And if you happen to be in the other camp who are just uh, glistening because the sun is, is warming your melons, then I, I pray that this would help you to remember why it is we're here. Proper worship is a big deal, um, particularly today. I mean, how do we think about it? How do we think about what it means to ascribe worth to God? Uh, what are the right ways of doing that? What, what, how should we involve ourselves in that? I mean... How should we rejoice and be glad in the Lord? I mean, we're gathered here on Sunday morning, for sure. I mean, we, we realize that. We kind of come to think about that. We've, we've prayed. We've sang songs. We've, we've read and meditated on Scripture. We're, we're right now listening to the preaching of God's Word. But is that all that worship really is? Is that it? No. No. All right. I'm glad to hear that. We're, we're moving ahead. You know... Um, Worship is not the series of rituals that we perform at set times, at set locations, during set days, in a set area, so that we can elicit or emote some sort of response, some sort of emotional, feelings-based response in ourselves. Worship is far more than that. Here in American churches, in particular, we, we have a problem with narrowing or narrowly defining what worship is. Worship is not just singing. I mean, you can go to any number of churches and you ask, and, and they'll say, hey, the worship was great today, but when they say that, they mean the music was good. They really enjoyed singing those songs today. Or we relegate uh, our worship to particular times and particular places. And, and so we, we feel like, okay, it's got to be at this location. It's got to be Sunday morning at 10 a.m. at the Hawthorne Suites Conference Center. And so if you change that a little bit, it affects everything. I wonder, I wonder if... <laughs> uh, distraction of technology. Um, I wonder how many of us are sitting here right now and... And maybe you're thinking ever so slightly to yourself, I'm having a really hard time worshiping here. I'm, I'm feeling really distracted. You know, we, we get so caught up in what this means that we, we, we feel like it has to be a certain way. And, and everything has to be laid out in a certain pattern for us to really be able to engage with God. Like it's somehow our emotional experience. And if we deviate from that, we, like right now, we've done everything basically the same as what we normally do. We've just moved it. We're outside. We no longer uh, have the safety and comfort of air conditioning and four walls around us to keep us out from the world. I and mean, we've changed one little thing, but I wonder how it's affected our ability to worship even now. The reality is it shouldn't. Our worship is not based upon certain rituals, certain practices, or our locations, or our set times, as if it happens on Sunday morning and then that's it. Worship is meant to encompass all of life. It's meant, it, it's, it's, it's seated and rooted in our hearts, in our minds. It's based upon truth and it affects everything. Every act is to be an act of worship. Everything that we do is meant to be worship and honoring to God. And so today as we think about that, as we look at the essentials of proper worship, I pray that this would affect our hearts, that we would be changed from thinking that worship is, is some of these uh, ritualistic activities that we perform on set days to being something more, that it's giving glory to God with every aspect of our lives. So turn with me in your Bibles. We're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 22. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 22. It says, Rejoice always, 
Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecy, but in everything hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. The first imperative given for proper worship with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength is that we are to rejoice always. The act of rejoicing is mentioned 222 times in the Bible. Over 50 times it's given as an imperative. It says rejoice. All you people rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. It's given as a command, as an imperative, that you ought to rejoice. So the scripture is emphatic that we are to give ourselves over to the act of rejoicing. But how do we do that? I mean, what does that really mean? Does that mean that we're just to be perpetually happy? That we're always to just go through every moment of every day with a big goofy grin on our face as we skip down the streets whistling show tunes? I mean, is that really what it's about? I mean, is Paul suggesting that we can turn our emotions on and off like tap water? Like we ought to be able to control the emotional disposition of our hearts and at any moment and any time we can go over and we can flip the switch and suddenly we are absolutely and, and, and gloriously happy. Is that really what it means? Rejoice always. No. No, we, we can't control our emotions. We can't control our dispositions. Paul's not speaking about that. He's not telling us that we should be able to command our feelings. But instead, this is a call, it's a command to joyful worship. He's not ordering us to direct our feelings, but to focus our thoughts on the truth and then to act, to respond in obedience. That's what he's calling us to. This is not an emotional command. It's cognitive. It starts in the mind. And it's volitional. It has to do with our wills. It starts with a call to hold to the truth, and then to be willing to respond to it. Emotions are the result of our knowing the truth and acting in accordance with the truth. Our, our, as we focus on facts, as we root our faith in facts, then our feelings will follow. See, joy is not based upon feelings, it's based upon truth. We don't respond by rejoicing and being glad emotionally because we've been told to. That's not how it works. We do when we hold fast to the truth of the gospel, when we rejoice, when we respond to what God has done in Jesus Christ. It's not a matter of stirring up our emotions. When we come here, we don't have to gear ourselves up to sort of have worship this morning. It should just be a natural byproduct of focusing on the truth every moment of every day. It has everything to do with the fact that Christ has purchased our salvation with his own blood. It has everything to do with the gospel. It has everything to do with the fact that we believe in a holy, perfect God. The one true creator who made us, who sustains us. You know, your life is upheld by God at this moment. The fact that you are able to draw breath is because God in His kindness continues to sustain your life. And we know from Scripture that this God is holy and righteous and just. He does not sin. He can have nothing to do with sin. But we've rebelled against Him. We've rejected Him. We've, we've sinned against Him in thought, in word, in deed. We've gone about trying to live as if this is our world and we're God. We're denying the fact that God, who created it, owns it. And He has sovereign right over all of it. And we reject it and try to live it out ourselves with no recognition of Him. And in the process, we deny His very character, His very essence. And God, because He is holy and just and righteous, He can't just overlook that. He can't just pass that over because he would be denying himself a good a holy a righteous a just even a loving god must punish sin to not would cease to be he would cease to be himself and so god we we have placed ourselves as we have willingly rejected god and tried to live as if this is our world and we're god we've placed ourselves under god's wrath 
We've done that. But in His mercy, it didn't end there. God did something amazing. God took on flesh. He became a man in the Son, in His Son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus lived that life that we couldn't, could not. In perfect obedience to the Father, always focused on the Father, always giving glory to the Father, always, always giving Him what was due His name. And He laid down that life as a substitute for our sin. He paid the ransom to satisfy the wrath of God that our sins deserved. And after three days, He rose from the grave to prove that He was the Son of God because He said three times that He would die and that He would rise again. He said in John chapter 10 that I lay my life down and I take it up again. God has given me this authority. Well, only God can raise people from the dead. And so He proves Himself to be the Son of God. He proves also that God's wrath against sin has been satisfied because there's no longer any reason for Him to remain in the grave. And His life, His reconciled life to the Father is a guarantee that we will experience an eternal reconciled life with God always. That's a guarantee. And when we think about that truth, when we wrap our minds and our hearts about that, we realize our desperate state before God and we run to Him for mercy. We respond by giving Him the glory due His name, not because of what we have done, as, as if He's going to somehow be, be pleased in our humble falling on our knees, but He's pleased in Christ's ultimate sacrifice. And because that sacrifice has now been applied to us, we can rejoice. The response is overwhelming joy, overwhelming hope, overwhelming trust and appreciation. And that marks every day, not just when we gather here, however small or however big or wherever our location might be or, or whatever we do, this marks every aspect of our lives. We are to rejoice always. And that comes first because we recognize and we affirm the truth of the gospel. We've caught hold of our need of it. We believe, we rest in the fact that we have received that in Jesus. And the result is joy. Joy. Unending, indestructible joy. See if the wind blew my stuff away. It didn't. Oh, good. Um, so Paul is saying, not that we should just do this often, but we should do this always. We should rejoice always. And again, it's seated in the truth of Scripture. So whether we're at home or whether we're at work, whether we are at school, whether we're in our car, whether we're in a crowd, whether we're in a park, whether we're by ourselves, our attitude should always be one of rejoicing. And we rejoice because Christ has accomplished our salvation. It's done. But there's something else that, that I want to draw out about the idea of rejoicing. Do you realize that joy, that rejoicing, is the one thing that sets us apart from every other religion? Do you realize that? This is the one distinguishing mark. The one thing that sets us apart from Islam, that sets us apart from Hinduism, the Buddhism, you name it. True Christianity, true Christianity is a religion not of do, not of work, not of what we have to accomplish to try to please God. But it's a religion of done. It's what Christ has already accomplished. You see that? Every other religion, whether you're trying to reach enlightenment or you're trying to do more good than bad, or you're trying to pay off your karmic debt, you are always striving, struggling, joylessly striving to try to earn the favor of whatever deity you happen to worship. It's always toil. It's always struggle. You're trying to get to that eternal state, whatever that might be. And you can never be assured that you're going to get there. You never can be completely confident that you're going to attain it. But true Christianity is completely different. True Christianity says, yeah, you can absolutely guarantee that you will be with God forever because of the accomplished work of Christ. Christ has already done it. There's nothing left to pay. There's nothing left to do. It's all been taken care of. And so our response is joy. Our response is hope. Our response is gratefulness. 
our response is gladness. And that, that is an emotional thing, right? We should be glad. But it doesn't start there. It starts with the truth Amen. that Jesus has paid it all, that he's done it all. It's such a sad thing to see that, that this works-based religion has creeped into Christianity. And that there are many so-called brothers and sisters in Christ that buy into this, that think it's about what I have to do. I have to earn my salvation. It's about my works, whether I, I give penance or whether it's based upon my morality or you name it. We've lost sight of the fact that Christ has accomplished it. It is done forever. And that's a reason to rejoice. <clears throat> So, uh, so the first essential to proper worship is rejoicing always. The second is very close to it. Proper worship displayed in our hearts and minds results in the fact that we pray without ceasing. The reality is if we've been purchased by the blood of Christ and not our own work, uh, having been delivered by the mercy of God from being an enemy of God to being his child, our natural response should be one of prayer. Now, when we say prayer, we're not talking about sitting on Santa's lap and asking him for stuff, asking for him to give you presents. So often we treat prayer as, as, as just like this. I come to God, I tell God what I want, what I expect from him, and I try to bend his will to mine. I try to change God's will. But that's not it. God knows the end from the beginning. It's all laid out. It's all planned. I mean, God has a plan for it all. You're not, your prayer doesn't change God's mind. Your prayer doesn't change God's action. Your prayer is a means by which you come and have a dialogue, like sitting on the lap of your instructing father. And as you develop your relationship with one another, your father informs you of his will. And your will is actually bent and conformed to his and the miraculous thing is that in this process, as you pray, God has worked your prayer into his plan so that when your prayer happens, that he answers it. His plan had, had accounted for your prayer so that you pray and you receive the blessing of seeing God respond to your dialogue. God responding to your requests as you ask in accordance with his will, not your own. So that's what prayer is. But when we think about when we think about praying without ceasing, I, I gotta be I gotta be honest. I'm like, are you kidding me? You want me to pray without ceasing? How do you do that? I mean, sometimes I can't pray for five minutes without being distracted by something. How am I supposed to devote my mind and my heart to some sort of perpetual sort of like? Uh, I don't know, sort of mystic connection where I'm always in conversation with the Father wherever I'm doing. I mean, I've got to eat, I've got to sleep, I've got to work, I've got to do all this stuff. How am I supposed to pray without ceasing? It seems impossible, right? Well, this word without ceasing is the same word used in Luke 18 of the persistent widow. Do you remember this story? It's about a widow who comes to a judge that neither fears God nor man. And over and over and over again, repeatedly, she comes to him. She comes to him and pleads her case and asks for justice. And he, he, doesn't, he doesn't fear God. He doesn't, he doesn't care or respect man. He's, like, he's just annoyed. He's bothered by her. And eventually he's like, okay, I'm done. Stop nagging me. I'm going to give you the justice that you want because you will not leave me alone. And Jesus says, listen, if... If an unrighteous man like this judge is willing to do something like that, imagine what your righteous father would be like. And he says that he, he taught this so that they would not lose heart, but they would always be persistent in prayer. So praying without ceasing is not perpetual prayer like I'm always praying. You know, just some sort of like, I don't know, this... Uh, and I'm thinking of like the meditative, you know, kind of uh, uh, transcendental meditation or something. But, but rather that it's persistence in prayer. That we go over and over and over and over again repeatedly. But the reality is this. You know, when you realize that your life 
not just your physical life, but your spiritual life is dependent upon God and His work of grace in your life, it's not a hard thing to run to Him. I mean, you run to Him for life over and over and over again. The more you realize that, that every aspect of your being has everything to do with the fact that God has done this work in your life, the, the natural response is prayer. You run to Him over and over again. So Paul is speaking of persistence in prayer. <clears throat> so, you know, persistence in prayer, it, it, it doesn't just happen um, when we have our scheduled prayer times. You know, like when we meet here at 9.25 to have our prayer meeting before the service, or when we pray in our service, or, or when you have your scheduled prayer times at home, you know, when you're having your private devotions. It should happen throughout the day. You, know, you, you should just constantly be giving yourself over to prayer. I mean, the reality is there are things around us everywhere to pray for. I mean, as you walk down the streets, as you interact with your coworkers and neighbors, there are thousands and thousands of things that you can be praying for, that you can be lifting up to the Father. And we need to be conscientious to do those things, to be consistent in prayer, to continue to go back to those things and to lift them up before the Father. <clears throat> um, you know, John Stott in his commentary on this, this passage said something that was really profound. He said... Uh, you know, I sometimes wonder, and of course he's not doubting here, but I sometimes wonder if comparatively slow progress towards world peace, world equity, and world evangelization is not due more than anything to the prayerlessness of the people of God. Not that God's will would be changed in any way, shape, and form, but you kind of wonder if we were more of a praying people, how much more we would see God at work in the situation. I mean, God accounts for that. But we need to be people who are persistent in prayer. And closely associated with both rejoicing and praying continually, we are to give thanks in all circumstances. And again, when you realize that God is the creator, sustainer, and provider of all of life, both physical and spiritual, who can help but respond in thanks? You know it's not dependent upon you. And so you run to Him in desperation with gratefulness because of what He has accomplished in Christ. So it's closely related to joy. If joy is the pleasure in experiencing the good gifts of God in Christ, thanksgiving is the grateful acknowledgement of God as the giver. Okay? So they're very similar. So we are to give thanks in all circumstances. This doesn't mean that we have to give thanks for all circumstances, but that we give thanks in all circumstances. We're not called to be sadistic here and to thank God for the pain that we're feeling right now. You know, if, if, you're, if your back's hurting right now because you're sitting on the, the bench or, or uh, you know, you name it, you, you don't thank God for that specifically, Right? I mean, that's not what he's calling us to. But we can have thanks always, regardless of our circumstances, because those aren't the end. We're not overcome by those. You see, the amazing thing about joy and about praying without ceasing and about giving thanks is that, is that it's, it's eschatological. Because regardless of our situation, if pain is your lot, if suffering is what is where you're at right now. And even if that is what God gives you for your entire life, you can rejoice because it's not the end. This is a light and momentary affliction that is welling up for you an eternal weight of glory. God has promised you something great, something more significant, something that cannot be taken away. And so you can hope in that. You can pray for that. You can, you can respond with gratitude. So... You know, that that can't be taken away. Um, and so Paul also says um, here that we are to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and to give thanks in all circumstances, because this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Right? See where he says that in verse 18? God's desire is to get, for you to give Him glory. Right? This is God's will, God's desire. It's for you to do these things, to give Him glory in that. But the means of giving Him glory is actually His gift to you. It's actually a blessing that you receive. 
Do you see this? God gets the glory and you get the good. As you rejoice in Him always, as you pray without ceasing, as you give thanks in all circumstances, God is glorified. He's honored in that. But you receive blessing from that. God gets the glory and you get the good. Or as John Piper says, God is most satisfied in us when we are, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. So as we pursue our satisfaction in Christ through continually drawing from the well of God's grace, through rejoicing, through praying, and through giving thanks, He continues to pour out His endless grace to us. He receives the praise and honor that is due His name. And we receive the blessing. But the giver gets the glory. The fourth essential of proper worship is found in verses 19 through 21. And I called this listening to God's word. So essential for proper worship is listening to God's word. Let's look again at verses 19 through 21. It says, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Now, I have to say from the get-go that I have labored extremely hard over these three verses. I can't even tell you how much time I spent studying and looking at the Greek and reading what people have had to say about this and praying and re-examining over and over and over again. Because the last thing that I want is for us to quench the Spirit. I don't want my response to this issue to be one in which the Spirit is quenched, right? I mean, who wants that? Nobody. But I can tell you this, that for all my effort, for all my... <laughs> I talk with Quinn. I mean, you just have to talk with Quinn about my conversations. I kept calling him. I just kept calling him up, and we were talking about this, and I would go round and round and round and round and round on this issue. And for all my effort... I landed in exactly the same place that I started. And that's a little frustrating because, you know, you think if you put all this time in, you've got a greater sense of clarity, that it's all good to go, and you're able to just kind of go from there and move on and, and build your church around that. But I'm not. And so, again, you know, we're, I, as I address these things, I, I want you to know that I'm still in process. I'm still kind of thinking about these things, and I still don't know how how we as a church should respond to this issue. The issue is primarily the nature and continuation of prophecy. How do we think about that? Our quenching the Spirit is depending upon how we treat prophecy. So we need to think carefully about that. When he says quench the Spirit, it probably means to stifle or suppress the Spirit. Not that you're able to thwart God's plan, God's will, but... It's neglecting a gift that God has given to the church in order to encourage and build the church up. So that's what it means to stifle or suppress the spirit. And so as a pastor, as a friend, as your brother, as your brother in Christ, I want to be careful in how I lead you guys through this and thinking about this passage. This is a big deal. Um, I don't want us to be quenched the spirit. I want us to be filled with the spirit. And so uh, the context, uh, just a quick con context, uh, in First Thessalonians, um, you see that, that there's at least a group in the church that is, Paul says, is quenching the spirit because they're hating, they're despising prophecy, right? And this could be a, a result of two things. You know, last week we talked about that there were some who were uh, failing to respect and to esteem their pastors in love. So it could be that, that they were quenching the Spirit by rejecting the prophecy that was given to their pastors, to their leaders. That could be one option. But the other option could be that they're just overreacting to the fact that there are false prophets out there. There are false teachers. There were plenty of people who would come into places like the church or other religions, and they would distort the message for their own gain, and as a result, they would lead other people astray. That was a common problem. The, the New Testament epistles deal with this over and over and over again of these false teachers who come in and try to lead people astray. And so it could be that the church is just saying, you know what, because we can't have confidence in this prophecy, we're just going to cut it off. We're just not going to deal with it at all. But you see, either, either we're, we're not respecting the gifts that God has given for, for equipping the church, or we're in fear, we're rejecting those things. Neither of those is a good option. We can't do that. As a church, when we think about this issue, we can't, we can't fall into either camp. And so, um, what does it mean to despise prophecy? 
Well, a big problem is trying to define prophecy. I mean, that, that is really uh, the crux of my problem in thinking about this issue. How do you define prophecy? Prophecy in the Bible means everything from this authoritative statements, thus says the Lord, which applies to all of the church, all the way down to a, a spontaneous, extemporaneous recounting of what the Lord has just done. You know, I mean, think about Moses' song, or Miriam's song, or Mary's song. All those are just reports of what God has just said or God has just done. They're just regurgitating what they saw happen. And so whether it was really set to music or not, whether it's really a song, it's either a musical news report or it's just a news report, you know? But it's a news report. They're not telling any new information. They're just recounting extemporaneously, suddenly, what God has just done. Then there's the whole foretelling side of prophecy. Some, some prophetic utterances are directed towards the future. And they give, they give predictions of what's going to happen hundreds, if not thousands, of years in the future. And they're pretty detailed in how that goes about. I mean, you think about uh, Isaiah 45 with, with the prophecy of Cyrus. And imagine how that, the, the surprise of the Israelites, were like, oh, wow, look at that. King of Persia is Cyrus who just set us free. Wow. Uh, Isaiah really got that one right. All the way down to the soldiers who, as they were beating Christ, said, prophesy, who was it that struck you? Tell me who it was that struck you. There's a very, uh, there's a, a big difference in the level of foretelling that happened right there. You know, and so how do you wrestle through that? Issues of, well, is there a difference between Old Testament prophecy and New Testament prophecy. This is an argument that goes around there. How should we think about that? Is there a difference? My answer is yes and no. Yes and no. Old Testament prophecy tends to be more authoritative. You, you hear more of that thus says the Lord kind of stuff. And it deals more with foretelling of future events that are pretty specific because they're predicting Christ, the coming of Christ, Versus New Testament prophecy that kind of seems sort of sudden and kind of has some future stuff, but is really more along the lines of encouragement and edification. But, but, we don't often realize this, both were tested against the scripture that was available at the time. Okay? It was always tested against scripture. There were false prophets in the Old Testament just as there were in the New Testament. And so you still had to take everything against God's revealed will, word and, and determine whether or not that was actual or not. So, yes and no. They, they may be different. They may be the same. There's also the issue of, okay, does Paul see his, his message as more authoritative than... <coughs> These prophecies, because he just said, test everything, hold fast to what is good. But he doesn't say that about himself, right? He doesn't say that about his word. He says in, in chapter 5, verse 27, the next to the last verse in that, that Bible, he says, or in that book, he says, hey, make sure that this is read to the entire church. He said in chapter 1, verse 6, and in chapter 2, verse 13, that this is the word of God. He commends the Thessalonians because they have received it, not as the words of men, but for what it really is, the words of God. So he in nowhere says, hey, test my words against Scripture, where he's saying test these prophecies against Scripture. So maybe there's a distinction, but we also have to remember this. Acts 17, or, or Acts, I think it's 15, the Bereans were actually commended because they took Paul's message and they tested it against Scripture. They, they were commended for that. And we also have to think about Paul's M.O. What did he usually do? Whenever he came to a town, he went to the synagogues, and he argued from the Old Testament scriptures of how Jesus was the Messiah. So it could be that Paul says, you know, doesn't say, you know, test my words against scripture, because he's already proven it in his mind. He's already labored to prove to them from scripture that this is actually the word of God. But then again, he also says in, in Galatians 1, even if an angel of the Lord should deliver a different gospel to you, let him be accursed. You, know, you just, you see what I'm saying? You see where the struggle remains? And then there's, there's the issue of, of illumination versus revelation. I know I'm going on and on about this stuff, guys, but it's important to kind of think about this. And I hope this is not too much of a, a sidebar, but I, I'm getting around to a point here, okay? Trust me in this. Um, 
you know, there's a difference between illumination and revelation. You know, revelation is authoritative. That thus says the Lord kind of stuff where God reveals a new truth about himself. And you see that as God moves, you know, he, he often includes prophecy with what's going on. And this is meant to be, you know, used for all of God's people. It's meant to be applied for all of God's people. But illumination is different. That's where God suddenly reveals a truth to you to apply to a situation or circumstances. And that's not authoritative. You know, when, when God gives you uh, a sudden scripture comes to mind as you're, as you're interacting with somebody that's struggling with a particular situation, well, that's just, that's illumination. You know, God has revealed that word to you in that moment for that situation, but it's not authoritative. Uh, or maybe you've understood the gospel for the first time. That's illumination, but it's not new truth. And so you've got this issue that you're wrestling with. And then you're, finally, <clears throat> I think this is the last one, um, You've got the issue of uh, the way in which God works differently throughout history. When we read the Bible, we're reading miraculous accounts of how God has moved differently throughout history. Okay? It's not the same thing. You know, God didn't act the same way. God's moving. He's, he's revealing more of himself. And so with that, there's often this accompaniment of, of miracles, of, of signs and wonders, and also prophecy along with that. And so it's not surprising to see that when God is moving that we see all these things happen. But it's never consistent. It's never the same. I mean, in Numbers 11, you have the 70 elders that were gathered there with Moses. They prophesied one time to reveal that this was indeed God's law and never again. You have to also think, too, that Jesus, the Son of God, the exact imprint of God's nature, fullest revelation we have of God, did not have supernatural strength like Samson. Did you ever think about that? Samson, that's a one-time deal. You know, and if I'm praying for the higher gifts, you know, like Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 14, hey, earnestly desire the higher gifts, your prophecy is great and all, but I'm going for superhuman strength. I want to be able to take a jawbone of a donkey and slay a thousand. That's what I'm going for. So, you know, if you want to know the secret, what gifts I'm praying for, and you want to pray with me in that, that's what I'm going for. Wouldn't that be cool? I mean, I don't care if my hair grows long and you guys see my Shirley Temple curls, which I have. I'm going for superhuman strength, right? So you see, you know, I've come back around. It's hard to define prophecy. How do we think about prophecy? What is it? And if we can't come to terms, if we can't, can't fully define prophecy, how can we ever say whether it's ceased, whether it continues, or whether it's been restored? Right? You see the problem here? So, let me get over here. Um, so, in short, I ended up right where I began with this with this ambivalent, unhelpful position, open but cautious, okay? Open but cautious. I'm open but cautious with regards to prophecy. What does that mean? It means that I believe that Jesus Christ is the fullest form of God's revelation. There's, there's nothing more authoritative, nothing more clear, nothing more uh, uh, no, absolute than Jesus as the fullest form of, of revelation of God. It, John says that if we have seen Jesus, then we have seen God. All right? So you don't get a, a more full, a more authoritative revelation than Jesus Christ himself. And so we don't have any need for any further revelation, right? It doesn't get better than Christ. Let <clears throat> me get where I am here. Um, and I also think, too, not wanting to quench the Spirit, not wanting to despise prophecy, that I believe that God has the right and ability to do whatever He pleases. And so if God were to decide that, hey, you know what, I'm going to continue to give this man a prophetic gift, a prophetic word, so that he can encourage and build up the body, then God has the right to do that. This is God here. It's not, it's not my say, right? I, I don't get to dictate that. Um, and so as we, and I see this particularly as the gospel is going forth for the first time. I mean, you see this, I mean, this is kind of a pattern. When God's, God's truth is being revealed to people for the first time, it's accompanied by signs and wonders and miracles. I, I've met guys in, in India when I'm there, and I, you know, these pastors, and I ask them, how did you come to know the Lord? A lot of them will say, well, actually, I saw a vision or I had a dream 
about Jesus, and it was really specific and really clear, and then the next day, somebody came and told me about Jesus, and I accepted it. I'm not willing to discount that as, as not prophetic or, or not miraculous in any way. But again, the gospel is moving forth for the first time. But I will say this. Even if God continues to work through prophecy, even if that's something that he still does, I don't think it's really helpful for us as a church to talk about it. And what I mean by that is this. If you believe earnestly that you have a prophetic word from the Lord, don't say, I believe the Lord is saying to me this. Because it may or may not be. Just use it to encourage the body. Just tell them, you know, test it against Scripture and tell them that. Don't say, hey, this is prophecy. Hey, this is what God says. Just tell them, hey, you know, I, I just want to encourage you in this. I want to build you up in this. Don't, Because what happens is inevitably we put on airs and we become divisive when we use the words. When we say prophecy, when we say, hey, the Lord's telling me this, we've kind of established ourselves as an authority. Right? We've put on airs and we've separated ourselves. I'm saying, listen, if you believe you have a word from the Lord, okay, shut up and go tell them about it and start serving the body rather than building up yourself. That's what I, that's what I think we ought to do. That, that's the way I believe we ought to handle it. Um, and one last thing about that <laughs> is that um, they're called spiritual gifts for a reason. Okay? It's because they've been given by the Spirit. They belong to the Spirit, not to you. Okay? The Spirit, I believe, will equip you to fulfill the purposes that He's given you in Christ. And those things can change, and those things can remain, but they're not yours. You didn't have them before you were in Christ, and you only have them now in order to fulfill His purposes. So do that. Use them for that. Use them to encourage and to build up the body. Not to exalt yourself and say, I have the gift of so-and-so. Because you don't. Christ has it. The Holy Spirit has it. And He's using it through you. So, uh, <clears throat> we have a more sure way, and Paul tells us what it is. So regardless of, of whether or not prophecy continues, or, or it's been restored, or whether it's ceased, or whatever, we have a more sure way. And that is to test everything, and to hold fast to what is good. To hold fast to the truth of Scripture. He's saying... He's saying, look, you know, if prophecy is legitimate, that's fine, but, but we need, uh, if you have a word from the Lord, you need to test it against the word of God. And I think Charles Spurgeon is really helpful on this. He talked once of prophecy and he said, listen, if it, if it doesn't agree with Scripture, if your word from the Lord doesn't agree with Scripture, you don't want it. And if it does agree with Scripture, then you don't need it. So if it agrees with Scripture, you don't want it. If it, if it does agree with Scripture, you don't need it. We have no more full revelation than what we've already received in Jesus Christ. So whether we've received a sudden revelation from God or not, we don't need to exalt ourselves in it. We don't need to give it a name. Instead, we need to test it against Scripture, and then we use it not to exalt ourselves, but to build up the body. So how do we keep from quenching the Spirit? How do we guard ourselves from despising prophecy? By listening to the Word of God, by knowing Scripture, by testing it against God's clearly revealed and authoritative Word. So the surest way that we can keep ourselves from stifling the work of God uh, is to test it against the Word. So if you're here today and you have some more charismatic leanings, maybe this sounds a bit unspiritual or minimalistic or narrow or unmysterious or unmystical, I would just repeat what I've heard from John Calvin. The Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture. He cannot vary and differ from Himself. Hence, He must ever remain just as He once revealed Himself. There. God did not bring forth His Word among men for the sake of a momentary display, intending that at the coming of His Spirit only to abolish it. Rather, he sent down the same Spirit by whose power he dispensed that word to complete his work by the efficacious confirmation of it. What he's saying here is that because the Holy Spirit has inspired Scripture, the Holy Spirit will not deviate from Scripture. 
God intended that His Word remain forever as the revelation of His character, nature, and work. And the Holy Spirit, who dispensed that very Word, will effectively confirm it in order to complete God's work of redemption in each person's heart. So in other words, we don't need other revelation than that which we have already received from the Spirit who delivered it and who will work through it to fulfill all of God's purposes. Does that make sense? So we listen to God's Word. Proper worship in our hearts happens as we listen to God's Word. And then finally, in verse 22, he says that the fifth essential for proper worship is that we abstain from every form of evil. Whether it's abstaining from murder or pride or theft or holding to false prophecy, Paul says that our worship is only as good as our actions throughout the week. It's only as good as our actions throughout the week. All our worship is vanity. If we live one way on Sunday and then, uh, and then spend the rest of our days committing evil, right? Our worship is no good. It's funny how we'll, we'll gear ourselves up to come to worship on Sunday morning and we'll get all excited about our little emotional response and how God might be pleased with our efforts. But then we go back home and we go to work and we give little or no heed to what God is doing. It has no real bearing on any aspect, any other aspect of our lives. We're guilty of ritualism. You see that? We're, we're, we become legalistic in what is and what isn't worship. We turn our corporate services and events and our private devotions as a means of meriting God's favor, but we neglect His will in every other aspect of our lives. We're just like the Pharisees who honor Him with their lips while their hearts are far from Him. You know, in Isaiah 58, um, you see the Israelites zealously worshiping God. I mean, they are diligently praying. They're regularly offering sacrifices. You know, they're, they're gathering together. They're even fasting regularly. I mean, how many here fast regularly? Anybody? I don't. So you see... Okay, Judy. Thank you, Judy. I'm glad you do that. Um, I'm going to move closer in an attempt to get a little bit more out of the wind. Um, um, but you can see that they were zealous. They were diligent. They were, they were working hard to perform their worship rituals in order to please God. But God's not pleased with their worship. He's not delighted at all because He says you're committing evil. You're committing evil by neglecting the poor, by oppressing workers, by quarreling, by fighting, by seeking your own pleasures rather than seeking to honor me with every aspect of your life. And so he's not pleased with their sacrifice. He said, you know, they, they did not abstain from evil and they did not hold fast to what is good. So God was displeased in their worship. The reality is, if you want to truly worship God, you must withhold yourself from evil and commit to doing good. So Paul, too, uh, says right here that if we want to worship God in spirit and in truth, then we need to stop living for ourselves and live a life that reflects the character of God. We're almost done. <laughs> and he doesn't say that condemningly. You know, we look at that and we start to feel really bad about ourselves and kind of get you know, down and what we have to do, what we have to do. We kind of, we've neglected where we've been so far in this verse, don't we? Right? We do. But he doesn't suggest that we need to just suck it up and begrudgingly obey God by the exertion of our own human wills. His imperative of rejoicing always, of praying without ceasing, of giving thanks in all circumstances, in, in listening to his word and abstaining from evil are actually filled with hope. Because he says in verses 23 and 24, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He's saying that God is at work to bring you to completion. If you commit yourself to obeying these commands of rejoicing always, of praying without ceasing, of giving thanks in all circumstances, listening to God's word and abstaining from evil, God will give you the grace to walk in it 
And though at times you fail, you can have confidence that God will keep you blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is great hope. There's two quick things to mention from this text. First, do you see that the essentials from proper worship are not limited by location, by day, by time, by ritual, by how many people you have gathered together? It's not limited by that in any way. They can and should happen when we gather on Sunday morning in this park or whether we're at home alone surfing the Internet. It's all the same. We are to always rejoice, continually pray, give thanks in every moment and situation, continually listen to God's word, and always abstain from evil. I mean, this is the heart of worship. And it's not limited to singing songs or whatever other liturgical practices we might enjoy on Sunday morning. These actions are meant to characterize our lives as we live every moment of every day in worship to God as we repeatedly offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to Him. Second, these commands were written to the church, right? But they are continually characterized, or, or to continually characterize the life of every believer. So they're both corporate and individual. When we gather together, we should rejoice always, pray, give thanks, listen to God's Word, and abstain from evil. And when we are by ourselves... We should rejoice always, pray, give thanks, listen to God's word, and abstain from evil. Our lives individually and our life together as a community are to be characterized this way, always giving glory to God as we continually worship Him in every aspect of our lives, both in spirit and in truth. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for Your word. Um, and this reminder of what we've received in Christ and what sort of response that ought to elicit within us. God, I pray that we would truly experience the joy that comes from knowing that we have been saved, that you have accomplished our salvation through the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, not by our effort, not by our own, our own human works, but because of your grace, because of your mercy, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, that you bring us from death to life. And God, I pray that just for forgiveness in our misunderstandings of what worship is, and I pray that this truth would be applied to our lives, that we would realize that every moment of every day is an opportunity to give you glory and that we would focus our efforts, focus our attentions on what the essentials of worship really are, both when we're gathered together and as individuals. And God, while we're here, we pray for our community, that they might see it too. God, I pray that we would make the gospel visible as a church here at Redeemer, whether we are few or many. And may you receive all honor and glory that is due your name. It's in Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.